Thank you so much. I really enjoyed that. I don't know if any of y'all are out there are Southern Gospel fans like I am, but there was a line in that song that the old Blackwood brothers used to sing with J.D. Sumner as uh, their bass singer and uh, just had me go back uh, in, in my mind to hear that. So I, I appreciate that so much. I'm going to ask you uh, to go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Zechariah. And as you're turning over there, I just want to say thank you. Uh, for the opportunity to be with you today. Uh, we think so much of your pastor. Uh, God has really gifted him, and he speaks very highly of you. And it was a great joy, that, uh, with great joy, that he asked me to come preach, and so uh, that I get to be with you today. But uh, we'll certainly pray for him as he is uh, teaching apologetics in Romania. How exciting it is that uh, you partner with him. And this church continues to engage in missional activity, not only here in the Rocky Mountain area, but across the street and across the seas as well. Well, as you make your way to the book of Zechariah, normally I'd have said if you turn to First Hezekiah, but I didn't want to do that to you today, because uh, invariably somebody will go, it's not in there, what's he talking about? But as you're turning to make your way, I, I just kind of want to put this question before you. You know, that song, uh, I'm Redeemed, uh, not only did it bring back that uh, memory of uh, that good Southern Gospel song, but as my grandmother lay dying, that refrain kept going through my mind. Many years ago, as I sat there with her, can remember those years of, as a child, Grandma and Granddaddy would take us to church when we visited them, and uh, I don't know how, how it was at your Grandma and Granddad's church, but the uh, the men sat over here, and the women sat over here, and, uh, and, and everybody it wasn't in their 60s or 70s, 80s. Uh, they sat out in the middle. But as a young boy, I'd always sit with my granddad and always took great delight in doing that. But just thinking the the rich history, uh, spiritual history that my grandparents left me and how that meant so much to us and thinking that she could only or we can only sing a song that the angels can't sing about being redeemed in the Lord. Amen? And what a great encouragement it is when we face those those great challenges in our life. Well, I want to make a confession to you. I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but preachers oftentimes aren't very honest with the people that they stand before to preach. They're just not. So, I'm going to do something and, uh, that I have started doing of late, last few years, of just saying that at times I get tired. And I get tired of it. Now, uh, fortunately, my wife's not here, and if my son dares repeat this, uh, he's out on his own. But... Uh, uh, you know, typically if she were here with me, she'd be going, yeah, I know exactly what you mean about being tired of it. But do you ever find yourself just in life, not only with families, but also in church, you just, you get tired at times. Because, I mean, let's be honest, Sunday is always coming, true? It always is. I don't know about, about your pastor, but when I pastored, as soon as I finished the Sunday morning sermon, I started thinking about next week, because it's always there. And at times we get tired, and let's be honest, uh, at least I, I get tired of it at times, and my suspicion is sometimes uh, the rest of us do as well. And that's kind of the situation that we find in the book of Zechariah. Opposition had come, and the people grew tired, and as they grew tired, they became discouraged. And as they became discouraged, God's work and faithfulness and fidelity to God began to take a back seat. And then they found themselves in a position that just with a few years passing very quickly, and have you lived long enough to know that the years get faster? I'm 50 now, and my mother says, wait till you get 80. Uh, you want to see time fly. But it's true. 
I think that's because we moved closer to the back end of it. But it was no time at all that when the children of Israel, let me just set the scene for you right here. In 539, Cyrus comes and he defeats the, uh, the, the Babylonians. And within a very short amount of time of him assuming control of the then known world, he issues a decree allowing the Israel, children of Israel to come back. You'll know that God had given several covenants in the Old Testament. There was the Abrahamic covenant found in Genesis 12, the Palestinian Mosaic covenant found and echoed in Deuteronomy, where he says this, If you love me and obey me, I'll bless you. If you disobey me, I'll curse you and drive you from the land. The Abrahamic covenant said this, I'm going to bless all nations through you. And we know principally that blessing was a prophecy pointing toward Jesus Christ. And then there's the Davidic covenant that the son, a a descendant of David, will always be on the throne. And then the new covenant in Jeremiah, where he's going to write a new covenant on the heart of the people of God, of which we have a part of. And so... We need to understand that when we look at the Old Testament, there's a series of covenants that come into play that are guiding the action. And that's what taking, is taking place right here. And I know what some of you are thinking. Well, that's great for those people, but what about me? In Ephesians, Paul tells us that where we were strangers and aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, we are now partakers of it. When I was in Israel several years ago, we were there on the Temple Mount and asking my guide, where would the court of Gentiles have been? And there, if you'll know how the Temple Mount is laid out now, here's the El Ask Mosque, and right to the right of it, if you're looking at the Mount of Olives, walking this way on the Temple Mount, there's actually a mosque underneath the ground that's uh, been built underneath there. And then the Dome of the Rock Mosque is right here. And if you walk behind the Dome of the Rock Mosque, at least our guide said, this is where the temple would have been, the Temple of Solomon, and even the temple that they're building now and that Herod would rebuild as well. But at, all the way to the edge of the Temple Mount, and now if you were to go to the edge of the Temple Mount, it's a stark, stark, uh, steep fall off. He said, that's where you Gentiles would have been. Far off, removed, could only look in from afar. And Paul says, no longer do we have to stay afar. We are invited in to the inner sanctum through this new covenant that God has issued with all of humanity. Those that follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So this is a, this is part of our story. And the principles that I hope to be able to unpack for you today are just as relevant as they were in 520 BC as they are in 2012. So let's just read the first few verses. Now come in and give you a little more context. And there's really only one point that I want to make for you today. One point that I want you to remember. If someone were to say, what was the sermon about today? This is what I hope you'll walk away and, say, and uh, tell them that it was about. That it's about God invites us to obedience. And with obedience, when we're disobedient, the first thing we need to do is repent. So whatever the issue is, whatever separates us, whatever distances us, God says repent. And here's the second part of what I want you to know. God says repent. And the second part is we get to enjoy the fellowship of His presence. With repentance comes the enjoyment of the fellowship of His presence. I hope to be able to unpack that for you and, and put a few, put a little meat on the bones. But if you will, I just want to read the first few verses of Zechariah. Would you stand to your feet in honor of the reading of the Word of God this morning? Just like in Nehemiah 8, when they opened the book of the law, what did God's people do? They stood in honor because they were so excited that it was God's Word that they were going to get to read. And they stood there the better part of the day as they read the law. Fortunately, you'll only stand just a few moments. 
In the first verse of Zechariah chapter 1, in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the son of Bechariah, Be- uh, the son of Edo, the prophet, saying, Bechariah, excuse me, The Lord has been very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. And all God's people said, Amen. And you may be seated, and may the Lord add the honor to the reading of His Word. As I've already told you, in 539, Cyrus defeats the the, uh, Babylonians, issues a decree allowing the Israelites to come back. There were three waves of people coming back to repopulate the, the land that had been given to them, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And here... It was this first wave under Zerubbabel. And you'll find the history of all this taking place in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. The first wave comes under Zerubbabel, the second Ezra, and then the third Nehemiah. But here we are. They had come back in 539, 538, and immediately, so says the first few chapters of Ezra, they begin working, restoring worship. And as they built the altar, they, they instituted feasts and they instituted worship of the Lord, and then began to build the foundation of the temple. And very quickly they discovered that in building, rebuilding the foundation of the temple, it was going to pale in comparison to Solomon's temple. And about chapter 5 of Ezra, we see that the old men and women, as they are looking at the efforts of their hands, weep. Why do they weep? Because they realize that it was not going to compare to the glory of Solomon's temple. And then add to that discouragement the opposition of the Samaritans. The Samaritans, you know about the long, uh, uh, the age-long enmity between the two peoples. And so they began opposing them and, and tried not only to physically oppose them, but also tried to have them uh, have problems with the, uh, with the governing authorities as well. So in a very quick time, here we have excitement and great expectation. These hopes are now dashed. And in Haggai... Chapter 1, he, the prophet comes in 520 B.C. Of, in August, about August 29th, and he says these words, Consider your ways. He says, look at what you're doing. Why do you feel this sense of dissatisfaction, this, this sense of lack of fulfillment, a lack of contentment? And, that, and then the younger prophet, Zechariah, where we find ourselves today, comes two months later, and he basically echoes the same thing. He says, look at your situation. Why do you find yourself in the situation that you're in? And you know, he's not talking about their physical circumstances. He's not talking about the opposition uh, from the Samaritans. He's not talking about the discouragement and the disappointment that the foundation of the temple that they're building is not going to compare to Solomon's. No, he's not. He's asking them about their spiritual contentment, their spiritual fulfillment. Why is it that you find yourself dissatisfied and lack of fulfillment? Just turn a page over real quickly, 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 if you will, with me. Haggai chapter 1, verse 6. Look what he says here. You so much bring in little, but you eat and do not have enough. I'm in Haggai chapter 1, verse 6. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. He who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Verse 7, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Zechariah echoes that. Even though they came and they and the prophet tells us they begin to work on the house of the Lord, just within a short amount of time, they cease working again. 
Because the discouragement was still there. And here is an age-old issue that we as Christians face. Our Lord and Savior echoed the very same thing in Matthew chapter 6 when He said, Seek ye first the what? The kingdom of God. And then what does He say? And all these things will be added unto you. Now that's in the context of worry. You got anybody that likes to worry in your family? My dad has this statement. I'm just going to choose not to join you in your worry. Well, the rest of us, because there are a few things we like to worry about, look at him and go, well, be a party pooper if you want to. But we're going to have our worry party over here. Now, when you're engaged in your worry party, what does that do? It just gets you all discombobulated, all upset, and does it solve anything? No, what it does is it drives everybody crazy around you. You know what I mean? You, I don't know about your family, but my family, we are two shakes of a cat's tail away from a Jerry Springer show most times. We are. Two shakes of a cat's tail away from a Jerry Springer. My son is, could stand and testify. He won't. But, uh, just cause we don't have all day. But I mean, we're just that close. We don't travel well together. Have you ever been through the airports and see those families that look like they are singing the song of the South? I mean, they are just so happy. Their love mom's got a smile on her face. The kids are well behaved. And dad, you know, he's loaded down with all the luggage, but he's even got a smile on his face. That's not our family. Oh no. One's over here, one's over there. There's a, there's a frown. There's this there's this look like you look at those people and you go, okay, that family's fixing to blow up. I mean, that's us. I mean, we're we're we just have it in our DNA, I guess. But there's a a common thread that comes in all of our lives, whether you're the warrior, whether you're the family that's ready to have the Jerry Springer show. And the issue is this, I think, we don't trust God. Because when I trust God, do I doubt God? Because only in the midst of doubt and not trusting God, that gives rise to disobedience. What happened in the Garden of Eden? The tempter, Satan, comes and he looks at Eve and says, Has God really said? And so here she was, supposed to have received instruction from Adam, was she not? And Adam had heard the word of the Lord, was supposed to instruct his house, and evidently Adam didn't quite effectively communicate what he was to communicate, did he? Because she began to doubt God's word. And when doubt leads, when doubt arises, it leads to a lack of trust, which then gives a fertile ground for disobedience. Now, there's a lesson in there, and I'm going to say this because I am one. I'm a guy. Now, Adam apparently was very close to Eve in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 1. But it's my suspicion that he was probably distracted because men still like to play with their toys. You know what I'm saying? The lions, monkeys, and elephants were probably right there. And they were probably having a good old time. And we still like to play with the lions, monkeys, and the elephants. Now we call it baseball, football, hunting, fishing, uh, NASCAR, any number of sports. If you got a man in your house, you know what I'm talking about. He gets distracted with that. Gentlemen, our job is to effectively, in a servant leader role, just like the Lord Jesus Christ, lead our homes. You're not a dictator. And if you think you are, your wife will set you straight in no time flat. I know it. I found that out to be clearly evidence in my first few weeks of marriage. When I was uh, growing up, I was the only male on my mother's side of the family. I was the prince. So, when I, when I, and of course I know my name's King, but I was the prince, I wasn't a king yet. But whenever I needed sweet tea, all I needed to do was jiggle my glass. And my sister and mother, somehow or another, made their way over and they would fill my glass. I thought that's the way life was. Thank you. I, I would have been smarter to have known different. 
I'm the firstborn in my family, and I married the baby. Uh, Joy's the baby. I should have been smart enough to realize there's going to be a problem here. Because as I was used to being catered to, guess what? Her dad, because she came along a few years later, just said, just give it to her. It's just easier. So, we're married, and we had dated for a long time before. Seven years, high school and college. All except for those times I had to put her on the sideline for a batitude. You know what I'm talking about. Of course, I can say that. She's not here uh, to counteract me. But, so we were sitting there one night. Got a little bit of room that we're uh, renting. It's probably no bigger than this area right here down front. And I just jiggle my glass. And she says, what's that? I go, everybody in the world knows what that means. That means my sweet tea glass is empty. And even though the entire apartment wasn't much bigger than this, that was her cue in a nice way to come over, you know, like June Cleaver. You know, the heels, the dresses, the makeup, the whole nine yards. And come and fill my tea and say, there you go, Ward. You know, glad to, my pleasure. Just like Chick-fil-A people do. I heard the refrigerator door open. And then it closed a little too fast, shut a little too hard. An observant person would have looked around at that point, but I wasn't observant. I still got my hand stuck out, doing that. I shook it a little more time, figuring she probably needed a note. Giddy up, let's do something. Next thing I know, the tea jug comes flying by my head, and it hit the wall. Tea goes everywhere. I turn around and look at her. She's in the kitchen. And she looks at me and got that look in her face that let me know that the best thing I needed to do was go clean that mess up. So I looked at her and I go, is there a problem? Now, my wife's 5'2". I'm six foot. So I stood up, you know. I was a cop at this point in Atlanta. I'm thinking, she obviously knows what's fixing to happen. I didn't. She did. She says, listen here, hoss. And whenever my wife says, Hoss, that's never good. She says, if you want somebody to fill your tea by rattling, you better go on back to your mama's house. Because that ain't going to happen here anymore. Now, I had a decision to make at that point. For, and obviously, I made the right one. We've been married 28 years. So, it taught me a valuable lesson at that point that there are rules to the game. And I need to be busy about finding out what the rules to the game are. And here we find ourselves, the children of Israel, understood the rules of the game, but had allowed discouragement, distraction, and opposition get them in a place where they decided, decided to disobey the rules of the game. Now here's an interesting fact. God had clearly said on the plains of Moab through His prophet Moses, If you love me and obey me, I'll bless you. If you disobey me, I'll curse you and drive you from the land. And guess what we have in the in the context of biblical history? There were periods of obedience and there were periods of disobedience. And it was a cycle after cycle after cycle. To the degree that disobedience became more often. And what happened to the northern kingdom in 722? The Assyrians came and destroyed them and, and deported the people. What happened in the southern kingdom? Judah and Benjamin in 586. The Babylonians destroyed and leveled Jerusalem and deported the people. God was true to His Word, and He says, If you love me, you'll obey me. If you disobey me, I'll curse you and drive you from the land. Now, that's the palace, the Mosaic Covenant, that they were under uh, obligation to. Because they had said yes at, uh, at the time of Moses, and reaffirmed that at the time of Joshua. And they didn't obey the rules of the game. Now, you're saying, now, Kevin, 
Is the Mosaic Covenant apply to us? No, it doesn't. We're not Israelites. We're not Jewish people. It doesn't apply to us. But there is a covenant that is still in a play, and it's the new covenant where God has written on our hearts His law and His law of love and grace. You see, the one thing about law, and Martin Luther was very correct in this, the law drives you to the end of yourself because you know you and I can't be perfect, can we? There is no way that we can live perfect. And Jesus said, or the New Testament says, in Matthew and in 1 Peter, be perfect because I am perfect. I don't know about you, but I've made at least two mistakes this year. And that disqualifies me from being perfect. And God says, Jesus, through Jesus in the Gospels, if you love me, you will do what? Obey my commands. Jesus fulfilled in complete and perfect order what Israel couldn't do, what Abraham couldn't do, what Moses couldn't do, what the children of Israel couldn't do. And Jesus fulfilled it and is the model for us that because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you and I now have the ability... At every point and every decision when we are faced with, do I trust God and obey God? Or do I disobey and not trust God and go my own way? Because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, you and I now have the ability to follow God. At every point. But here's the question. Do we? If I'm going to be honest, no I don't. You know what trips me up? Going to probably trip me up tomorrow. Here I am speaking into existence. I shouldn't do that. As I'm making my way to LU on 501 and I go get off Candler's Road, there are some people who do not know what that access ramp means. It means you drive all the way down to the end of it and people, you will, you can get over, but you know what they'll do? They'll stop at the top of the access ramp and back traffic up all the way down 501 so that we can't get on Candler's. And here I'm thinking they get to vote and breed. You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about? It just set me up for failure. So at that moment, will I trust God? Here's what Zechariah is saying. He's saying, you did not. And look what the Lord, verse 2, the Lord has been angry with your fathers. And he says, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I'll return to you. And then he goes on to say, do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets preach, thus saying the Lord of hosts. And every time you see Lord of hosts in Zechariah, it means God has the ability, the wherewithal, and the power to get done what he says he will do. It's a, it's an ascription of might and power. He says, don't be like your fathers to whom the former prophets preached, thus saying, turn now from your evil ways and your evil deeds. But listen to what he says. But did they heed me, says the Lord. What's the obvious answer right there? No, they didn't. They didn't heed you. And then he says, your fathers, where are they? The answer is, they're dead. And the prophets, do they live forever? And the answer to that is, no, the prophets don't live live forever. And yet, look what he says in verse 6. Yet surely my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? And the answer there is, yes, they did. God did exactly what He said He would do. He sent prophet after prophet after prophet. All you have to do is look at the, at the list of the former prophets and find where they come. And they are beseeching God's people. Return to God. There was uh, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Zephaniah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and Isaiah. They are pleading with God's people. Return to Him. And yet they steadfastly said no time and time and time again until ultimately God says, I'm going to do what I said I was going to do and I'm going to, now I'm going to drive you from the land. But notice what he says. Here's the difference between me and God. 
You make me mad, I'm probably not going to get over it. But see, God doesn't respond to people sinning against us like a lot of us do. Now, the good thing for most folks is I do get over things pretty quick. I can get hot and bothered, but just like a Jerry Springer show, within 45 minutes, it's done, and I'm over it. I'm not like some of the people we have in our families that just seethe and they don't get angry for years. Those are the people you got to watch out for. You know what I'm saying? So, but God says, I have a set disposition. I love you and I will bless you. But when you sin against me, there will come a point in time where I will judge the sin. And that's what he's done. But notice what he does. After the time, Jeremiah had said there would be about 70 years, and then there would be this repatriation, this re-coming to the land. And that occurred under Cyrus. Look at what God's done all through history, doing exactly what he said he would do, inviting the people of Israel and inviting you and me to trust him at every point in which we face decision in our lives. The question becomes, will I follow the example of Jesus, enabled by the Spirit of God, because of the promise of Jesus and the accomplishment of work on the cross and choose to obey God. He's given us thousands of years of history that says, you can trust me. And so even in their disobedience, God says, return to me. Notice he didn't say turn or burn. You know what return to me is? That's an extension of a, of a loving hand and says, take my hand and come back to me. I have a friend in Steamboat that says this, and I think this statement is spot on. God loves you enough to take you right where you're at. But it doesn't end there. But he loves you too much to leave you there. Isn't that great? He extends his hand and says, come follow me. Come follow me. I don't know, even at 50, my dad's 85, be 86 in just a few weeks. I love it when we're walking and my dad extends his hand and I'm able to hold his hand. I still, I still enjoy that. I can remember as a boy, my dad was able used to carry me. Now I can pick him up and carry him around if I had to. But when he extends that hand, there is something that is comforting, that is that it just provides a solace and a comfort that nobody else can provide in my life. Because you see, in many ways, I'm still that little boy that would come in while he would be getting ready for work, watching him do his different exercises on the way to work. And I, and I thought he was the biggest, toughest man in the world. And I discovered he wasn't. And that, that's always, that's another issue in and of itself. But, but there's still something comforting about my dad's presence he made it easy for me to love the father and so when the when the prophet says return to me boy i can just see my dad sticking out his hand because he made it easy to love god god sticks his out his out his hand and says to you and me this morning i don't care what the issue is whether it's you our lack of trust our doubting our questioning god isn't afraid of that he sticks out his hand and says will you trust me that's the first step to enjoy the present, the fellowship of his presence. Repent, whatever it is, discouragement, doubt, distraction, whatever the issue is. Maybe we think somebody's wronged us and we have a right to hold it against them for year after year after year after year. No, we don't. Because I don't know about you, when I'm wrong, I want people to extend quick forgiveness to me. True? Don't you want that? But I'll tell you, there are times some people I still want to be mad with. But if I'm going to look at it through the lens of Scripture, I have to be willing to forgive them just as, as I hope they're willing to forgive me. God says, repent right now. Here, right now. Don't, don't debate it. Don't deny it. Don't delay. Come take me by the hand. That's the first step. And then look what happens after that. 
So he, and they said, just as the Lord of hosts determined to do to us according to our ways, our deeds, so he has dealt with us. You know what their rendering on the subject was? God was right in dealing with us like that. Even though he was right, he still extends the hand and says, return to me. Repent. I don't care what the issue is. Today, repent. And then, on the 24th day of the 11th month, this is about February 15th, which is the month of Shabbat, the second year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Bechariah, the son of Edo the prophet. He says, I saw by night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. And it stood among the myrtle trees in the hollow, and behind him were horses red, sorrel, and white. This is the first vision that Zechariah is given. It's followed by seven more. Then I said, My Lord, what are these? So the angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. And the man who stood among the mortal trees answered and said, These are the ones whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro throughout the earth. So the answer of the angel of the Lord, who stood among the myrtle trees, and this angel of the Lord we know to be the pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Hagar had seen the, the angel of the Lord, as did Abraham, Jacob, Moses, Gideon, and even Samson's parents. And, this Lord, and the angel of the Lord stood among the myrtle trees and said, We have walked to and fro throughout the earth, and behold, all the earth is resting quiet. Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem? On the cities of Judah, against which you were angry these seventy years. And the Lord answered the angel who talked to me with good and comforting words. Aren't you glad that he included this phrase, good and comforting words? And the Lord answered the angel who talked with me with good and comforting words. So the angel who spoke with me said, Proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with great zeal. I am exceedingly angry with the nations at ease. For I was a little angry, and they helped, but with evil intent. Therefore, says the Lord, I am returning to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, says the Lord of hosts, and a surveyor's line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Again proclaim, saying, says the Lord of hosts, My city shall again spread out through prosperity. The Lord will again comfort Zion and will again choose Jerusalem. Let me try to unpack this for you. Here we have, based on this invitation to repent. That's the first step. Whatever the issue is, doubt, discouragement, disobedience, whatever it is, repent. Get it done. Keep short accounts with God. When something arises in your life, say, Lord, forgive me. And just the promise of Scripture. If we are faithful and just to confess our sins, He will what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, let me tell you this. That's not a have to in life. It's a get to. Do you know the difference? The difference between a have to and get to is this. Did you hear how the beautiful music was just a moment ago? If I sat down at that piano and tried to play what I attempted to learn as a freshman at Carson Newman College, taking piano for 16 weeks, the song was Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. I could barely find middle C. I thought it'd be an easy A. If you've ever played music, you know it's not easy. You've got to spend time and effort and work at it. While everybody else my freshman year was up doing whatever after football practice, I was at the piano lab with a set of headphones on trying to learn how to play Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. It was miserable. I learned what? Music's not my thing. I enjoy it immensely, but it's not my thing. But if I were to sit down and try to play, it would be horrendous. There would be no great melody, no great music. But because they have given the musicians, have given themselves to the discipline of practice, and of obedience to their teacher, they now have the freedom to make beautiful music. That's the difference between a have to 
and a get to. When you get to, you learn that this is enjoyment. Discipline's a great word. It's a word that I, that I will eventually enjoy great freedom with. I eventually came to the point in the, my own life that I learned that I, that I love to please my parents. It was no longer, hey, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. They beat that out of me. Uh, my mother did anyway. They, and I eventually got, you know what? Life is going to go a lot easier if I learn to please them as opposed to disobedience. And as I began to relish in this pleasing them, it was not because of, you know, I was going to get a little trinket or all this. Because of the relationship was enhanced. It gave me freedom. It gave me great joy. It gave me great delight. That's the first step. Now notice what he says. He he has this vision. Many scholars think that it took place right on the Kidron Valley. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, you'll know it sits on three valleys. There's the Hinnon, the Tropion Valley, and the Kidron Valley. Right over here at the Kidron is where the Garden of Gethsemane is. You come down the Mount of Olives. Here's the Garden of Gethsemane to your right. And here's all this burial place occupied by all these sepulchers in Israel today. But right here in Zechariah's time, the place would have been saturated with myrtle trees. They're about 30 feet tall. And down in the bottom of the ravine, because the word there translated in New King James is hollow, would have been a steep ravine. And the imagery is this. That when you are sometimes discouraged and, and, and despondent, either opposition or because of disobedience... You feel like nobody can find you. Have you ever felt like that? Nobody understands. Nobody understands me. I feel all alone. I'm, I'm in this deep, dark place. Nobody knows where I'm at right now. Nobody understands. And the Word of God is this. I know where you're at. I know exactly where you're at. And I want you to know this. I've sent my, my emissaries, and here it's translated as horsemen, and it's to signify patrol, that God's own patrol, that there is nothing taking place throughout the world that He's not aware of. Now here's the amazing thing. The world was at peace, the, the world, but Israel was in turmoil. And so God says, I'm walking out in and amongst all the world, and I know right where you're at. And here are my good and comforting words. And the words are these. I am with you. Where have you heard that before? Where have you heard, I am with you? Well, Haggai says it right at the end of his uh, prophecy in uh, his word to the people in chapter 1. But you've also heard Jesus echo it. You've also heard Moses experience that. Joshua hear the same words. He said to Joshua, as I was with Moses, so I'll be with you. Notice this, wherever you find yourself, God says, I'm there. There's no place that you can go that I haven't been and will not go. So he goes on to say, with these good and comforting words, that the time of my judgment is coming to an end. Even though I was angry with Jerusalem because of her sins, and I sent other countries in to judge her, just like I said I would, they've gone beyond the pale. They've done it with too much hate, too much delight. And now I'm bringing their time to an end, and there will come a point in time when the borders of Israel will have no end. And that's obviously an allusion to the millennial reign of Christ, but you and I can rest assured of this, that wherever we find ourselves, just like these horsemen walking through the world, and there's the angel of the Lord standing in the middle of the myrtle trees, even on the very edge of this deep, dark ravine, Zechariah looks to him, and the angel of the Lord gives this prophet, this word from the Lord, says, I am with you. I know right where you're at. Now, 
Here's the issue for us. Vance Havner says, it's one thing for to ask God to bless you. But it's another thing to be the kind of person God can bless. So the question is this. Are we obedient people? Do we trust God at every turn? Well, you might say, well, man, I'm in church today. I trust Him. Well, no, church going is not trusting God. That could be cultural. That could be mom and daddy. That could be any number of things. I know even after we got married, my mother-in-law, the only way you were going to eat Sunday dinner with her is if you showed up to church. And there was a period of my time. Guess what? That's the only reason I was there. I was just like, hurry up, dude. You're killing me. Get done. So here's the question. Do we trust Him? You see, because the more we trust Him, the more we're able to move into this area of obedience. A.W. Tozer says this. God says in Zechariah chapter 1, return to me. James says, draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. You know that. But Tozer said to be near God is to begin to be like God. And what he means, conform to the image of Christ. And this is what Jesus does for us. In his example, he shows us what it is to be a person who is obedient to God and in such relationship with God that the beat of his heart, the passion of his life is to please God. You and I, because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, have the same ability today. It's not because we have to. It's not because God's putting a stick to our head or a gun to our head and saying, Hey, I'm going to make you. He wants you to choose Him. And in, and in doing so, love Him to ever greater degree. And here's my question for all of us. Will we trust God? Because here it is. It's repentance leads to the fellowship of His presence. And just as he sent out those good and comforting words, he said the very same thing in Haggai chapter 1. Just look with me very quickly there in verse 15 to what he said. He said in Haggai uh, chapter 1, he says, uh, picking up in verse 13, Then the Lord's messenger spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you. And in verse 14, the Lord stirs the spirit of the people, stirs the spirit of the leaders. And they begin work on the temple. And they begin doing exactly what God called them. And here's the reason they were able to do it. It's not because they had to, it's because they, could, they got to. It was the presence of God in their midst, in their lives that, be, that would comfort them, that encouraged them. It was this promise, I am with you, that made all the difference in the world. So here it is for us, that the question that we have to ask, answer and ask ourselves, is the presence of God with us? Have we committed our lives to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, repented of our sins, surrendered to Him as Lord and Savior, so that we get to enjoy the presence of God? And here's what happens when you do. You'll be able to hear that promise just like Adam did as he used to walk in the cool of the evening with God. You'll hear that promise just like Enoch did until finally one God day God said to Enoch, Hey, we're a little closer to my house. Why don't you come over and spend the night with me tonight? And you'll hear the promise just like Noah did, like Abraham and Isaac did on the way to Mount Moriah, just like Joseph did when he went from the pit to the prison to the palace. The presence of God was with him all through his life. And then there was Moses. The presence of God was Moses was with him just as he was a little baby floating in the Nile. When he would be raised in the palace of Pharaoh. When he would be on the backside of the desert there attending sheep of his father-in-law. When he would be leading the people of Israel for 40 years, basically in circles. And it would be the presence of God that would be with him on Mount Nebo as he would only get to look over into the promised land and not actually get to lead the people there. And then it would be the presence of God that would be with Joshua. And he said, Joshua, just like I was with Moses, I'll be with you. 
And in seven and a half years, Joshua was able to lead the children of Israel into the promised land and conquered it, just like God had promised their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And even in the time of the judges, during when there would be episodic rebellion, the judges heard it. Othniel, Ehud, Shemgar, Deborah, while well, even little old Gideon would experience the promise of the presence of God. And then Naomi, as she followed her mother, uh, mother-in-law would be able to, as she, as she and her daughter-in-law would, would come from Moab and come back into the land. She would experience the presence of God through the promise of Boaz. And it would even be her great-great-grandson. That little ruddy boy had a ruddy complexion, about 15 years old, that would stand toe-to-toe with a nine-foot giant. You see, he had already killed the lion. He had already killed the bear. And there as he stood to face Goliath, the presence of God was with David. And he was able to do the unimaginable, the unthinkable, and the un- unbelievable. Why? Because the presence of God was with him. And just like God was with those people, God has promised to be with you. And so even though you're right here, Rocky Mount, Virginia, United States of America in the year 2012, the same God who was able to part the Red Sea, the same God who was able to stand the waters of the Jordan on its head and, and for over two million people to cross across on dry land, that's the same God who lives today and the same God who says, return to me and have the promise of my fellowship. Rocky Mount Baptist Church, is that you? Does that describe you today? If not, there's one way to begin the journey. And that's this morning as our as our musicians and, and uh, song folks come forward and begin to play of him invitation. We're going to invite you to step out and trust God this morning. I know for many of you, you say, well, Kevin, I've already done that. I've already prayed to, I've already repented. I've prayed to receive Christ as my Lord and Savior. And I hope that's true and I hope that's fine. But let me ask you this. Is the testimony of your life such that, that if when they roll you down here in front, back home in Georgia, they just buried a, a next door neighbor of mine. And as a young boy, I thought he was as a godly man as I ever seen. But through the years, he began to walk away from God. And when they rolled him down, I, I wasn't able to attend the funeral. But I had to think, what legacy did he leave? Last night, a neighbor who lives four doors up from us, my wife and I are out doing our evening walk. He's in his 80s and he stopped by and he says, my wife is in the hospital. I can't get in touch with my sons. I can't get in touch with my daughter-in-law. Will you just come and be with me? So my wife ran home, jumped in the car, and before they got to the hospital, this woman who two weeks ago was with her family cooking for him on vacation had slipped from this life to the next. Just that quick. Here's the reality. All we have is right now. And what are you going to do with right now? God says, return to me. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you in the quietness of this moment, just before we begin to take our hymn of invitation. Lord, there may be some people in here who need to make this step, need to get up out of their seats, come forward, and take me by the hand and say, Kevin, today... I am repenting of my sins. Maybe it's a prayer like this. There's no magic in the words, but it's the sentiment of the heart. Father, forgive me. I'm a sinner. There's nothing good within me at all. I'm asking you to forgive me of my sins. And then I'm surrendering my life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Paul said that if you believe with your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and God has raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. What does he mean by that? 
Save from all those past mistakes that would separate you from God. Save from uh, all the mistakes that are in that little closet that if they got out, we would be so embarrassed. We wouldn't want anybody to know about. God says, I'll take those and I'll cast them into the sea of forgetfulness. My present has no meaning or direction. Why are you here? What is life for? In Christ we find all that we need to. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You can find what it is to have truth, to have life, and the way that He promises. And then, saved from a future that was alienated from God in a place called hell. Nobody likes to talk about that, but it is the absolute truth, according to God's Word, that hell was created for the devil and his angels, for their rebellion, and for all those that say no to this offer of salvation. That's their eternal destiny. God says, return to me, his outstretched hand. And then those good and comforting words that, that, that comfort Christians through the ages, just like that song, I'm redeemed. That'll be your song. Those will be good and comforting words to you. As we stand to our feet and sing, I'm going to ask you to come forward. If God lays it on your heart, be saved this day. Maybe you just want to come and pray for some other person in your family, some friend. Whatever the issue is, do exactly what God's called you to do today. It's in the mighty name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Would you stand to your feet as we sing? Today, know that we pray for you. Uh, we love your pastor. I love you and and the testimony that this church has in this community. And and may you just continue to carry the life changing message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, not only across the street but across the seas as well. And uh, God bless you. I'm going to close in prayer. Is that right, my brother? And uh, then after our closing prayer, go and have a great afternoon. And God bless you. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that even in the midst when you have to confront our rebellion and our sin, there are good and comforting words. May we take this this message that speaks to me each and every day, that I can trust you. And in trusting you, I can obey you. And when I don't, I need to repent. And then I get to enjoy the fellowship of your presence. Father, help us to be those kind of people this week who go out and live and embody the presence of Jesus Christ. I pray for those that in this sanction, in this church family that have physical needs, financial, psychological, spiritual needs, whatever they are. May you meet them as you deem best. And Father, at each and every point, may we trust you, just as our Lord and Savior did. Live a life that would conform to his image. God, we love you. We thank you for loving us. And it's the mighty name, in the mighty name and matchless name of our Lord and Jesus Christ, I pray. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed. Have a great afternoon.